times a week as a corporate body of Christ. Lord, we do not want to take lightly the gathering of your children. From the beginning of history, you have gathered your people. It's important to you. You want the faces of your children there in your word so they know you, so they find comfort. They even find discipline and redirection in life, Lord. You know the power of your word to transform us, Lord, and so you have gathered us for such a long time. And Lord, in our world today, we know that those freedoms are being threatened, and so Lord, may we always count it a privilege to come together in a crowd this size. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless today. We do pray for the church around the world. Not all nations have the freedom we have to meet like this. And we pray for those house churches, those churches that are meeting in secret, Lord. May their worship be just as powerful, just as meaningful. May the word of God stimulate them just as much as it does, does us in our freedom. We ask that you bless our missionaries that are all over, Lord, in different continents, here in America and around, Lord. Lord, give them, give them zeal, Lord. Give them an abundance of joy that just comes out in their preaching and their discipling, their care for those around them. Give them favor, Lord, and may the gospel continue to be unhindered, Lord. Your word is never chained. And so we ask that it would go forward for your glory and for the salvation of many. Lord, we think of those in our own congregation who cannot be with us today. Many are at home watching or maybe in a hospital or somewhere recovering. We love them, Lord, and we miss them. We know you have purposes even for the difficult things, Lord. We ask that you would help them finish well, Lord. We pray for their caretakers, those who watch over them and care for them, Lord. Be merciful. Give them strength and rest. Give them joy, Lord, as they serve in a unique way, Lord. Father, now we turn to your word. May it not return void. May it do what it intended to do, to cause our hearts and minds to be in awe of our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, remembrance is an important thing to God, but it is also an important thing to humans. Today is 9-11, and it is a day we remember September 9-11. I don't know where you were when that happened, but I know exactly where I was. It's a day of remembrance for us. Many men and women in uniform ran up those stairs uh, trying to rescue people, and they never came out, did they? And one of the ways we honor them is we remember them, don't we? Those who know someone, family members who lost family members, they certainly remember this day. It's powerful to them. It brings all kinds of emotions to surface. So remembrance is an important thing, and we do pray for those families, and we pray that God would have saved and will save many of the families that lost members in that tragic day. But there's a beauty to remembrance as well. I will never forget the day almost 35 years ago when the back doors of First Baptist Church, uh, Grace Baptist Church of Redding, California, opened up and my bride walked through them. Boy, I'll not forget that day. I can still see her face, the events that took place. See, that's, there's great joy that comes. The remembrance of the birth of my children, our boys together, oh, what a joy those were. 
I mean, these are capstones of, of life. We have such fond remembrances. Raising the boys on the ranch and coming in from a cold, long day, working cows and a warm home, a sweet wife and boys. See, these are great remembrances, aren't they? And they often motivate us. We'll look through pictures, won't we, at times. We'll gather and think about times of the past, and they'll bring great encouragement to us. Don't let that come only at a funeral service. Time, sometimes just good to remember what God has done and count our blessings, count each and every one of them, and remember this gracious God who has blessed us. Well, there's a key phrase in our text today that we want to highlight. Do this in remembrance of me, the Lord Jesus said. Paul echoes those words because in the remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find great joy, don't we? Our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we can have an eternal relationship with Him, the Father, and the Spirit for all time. Isn't that a great remembrance? And we remember that time and time again. We often say this, stolen from preachers down through ages. We preach the gospel to ourselves. It reminds us what God has done. And how he took wretches like us and made us free of our sins. <laughs> Isn't that worth an amen? <laughs> oh my goodness, what great remembrance we have. But when we fail to remember, problems come. This certainly was the problem with the nation of Israel. We see this throughout the scriptures. Psalms chapter 78 verse 11 says this. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. They forgot, seized, split. Slavery, taken out of slavery, they forgot that. And they worshiped other gods. Psalms chapter, one, Psalms chapter 106, verse 21, they forgot, listen to this, their God and Savior who had done great things in Egypt. They forgot it. And when we forget the great things that God done, oh, our flesh, Satan, everything's waiting there, right there to take your thoughts captive into something else. Timothy, um, uh, the one who really picked up the mantle from the Apostle Paul, particularly in Ephesus, Paul writes to him and says in chapter 2, verse 8, in his final letter, he says, remember Jesus Christ. What a great statement. <laughs> remember him. Did you remember him this week? Did you know where your Bible was this morning when you were left to go to church? Did you remember him? And Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. We have a living Savior. That's one of the things we celebrate. Not just his death, but his resurrection. And his return, as we'll see this morning. He's a descendant of David. That means he was the promised one God promised in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. And then he says, according to my gospel. This is what we remember. Churches down through the ages have lost this as well. It wasn't only Israel. But the church in Sardis, in Revelation chapter 3, John writes through the inspiration of the scriptures to them and says, Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. And he says this, Which are about to die. That's what can happen. You forget what the Lord has done, pretty soon your spiritual life feels as though it's dying, isn't it? You forget what God has done in your marriage, 
your children, pretty soon those things can die, can't they? And here the church was dying because they had forgotten, they were asleep. So he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, So remember what you received and heard. Remember what you received and what you heard. Well, this is the table. This is what we do, the Lord's table. We remember and receive what God has done. It stimulates us to good works. It stimulates us to worship. It stimulates us to a joy that the world can never have. Well, this morning, I want to look at four thoughts in this text. One, the beauty of the Lord's table. Two, how we can distort a man-centered communion. It gets distorted really quick when it becomes about man. We'll look at that. But then we'll look at, and I want you to get this, the fruitfulness of examination. There's fruit there when we examine our lives. And then finally, we'll see how beautiful unity is versus fear when unity is driven out. Well, let's look at the first one, the beauty of the Lord's table. This will certainly be my longest of the points, and then we'll move through the last three quickly. But this, these first four verses are just beautiful. Look with me at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. I'm in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, when Paul says, What shall I say to you? Back in verse 22, we ended with this last week. It doesn't mean he is speechless in any ways. We saw the level of inspired frustration the Apostle Paul has with a church who took a beautiful love feast, a fellowship meal, the Lord's table, and most likely the preaching, and made it into a selfish act. And so Paul says, look, I don't know what to say to you in verse 22. But actually he does, because the spiritual father of this church in Corinth Paul, the founder of it, he now teaches and he turns to every one of its members and he's going to teach on the significance and the beauty of the Lord's table in order to bring them back to a correct understanding of why we gather together. Now, if you notice in your Bible, the heading there above this section, 23 through 34, will say either two things. It'll say the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table, most likely. And the heading reflects the reality of a sacred celebration. Something that God has set aside only for his true church. It's a blessed event. And the believer must understand that when we eat this bread and drink this cup of our Lord, now think about this, we are his guest at his table. It's not our table. It's called the what? The Lord's table. That's what had gone on in Corinth. It's what's gone on so much around so-called churches today or religious organizations. They've made it their table and not the Lord's. Now, it's his because he chose us, right? 
We're reminded over and over in the scriptures that God is sovereign in control of all things, control of our eternal destiny, predetermines, predestines our life, doesn't he? And so it's his table because he chose us, and he did this through the finished work of his son. And look, he did this to make you a part of his forever family. Isn't that beautiful? And it is his sovereign decision to make us his children. He, he decided that we would sit at the table and sup with him. And there's a day coming at the Lamb's Feast that someday we will sit there as his heirs, joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, all because of his sovereign choice. And on our own, look, we have no right to this table. On our own, we have no right to it. It is the Lord's table. And that's why Paul writes in so many different ways, like Titus chapter 3, 4, and 5, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, then that little phrase, he saved us. Look, if you're not a sinner, you don't need to be saved. But if you're a sinner, you knew you needed to be saved. And that's the gracious work of God. And so as we come to the table this morning, particularly looking at this text and then preaching our way right into the table, do you still marvel at the fact that God saved you? I've been in the faith 50 years. I marvel that he saved this wretch. He didn't have to. He wouldn't be wrong if he didn't, but he did. And I don't know how he does that and understand every aspect of that, but aren't you grateful he saved you? Are you marveling at it? See, there's a difference between someone who has some, some use for God than someone who just has some fire insurance in their back pocket. We still marvel. We're still amazed at grace. We're captured by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That there's nothing to be added, and this table does not add to what he's done. And oh, friend, if you add by taking this, trying to add by this or anything else, you mock his finished work. Because you say it is not finished. See, there's just beauty here, isn't there? There's beauty that he saved us, right? There's beauty in grace. There's beauty that we can rely, lay back in the finished work of Jesus Christ and not add something to that. We know it's complete. Well, these are the things the Corinth church forgot and maybe in some cases never knew. And without them, their fellowship meal, the Lord's table... It just became tradition, and it was overshadowed in selfishness. They, they just abused the things of God, and Paul wants to set that record straight. One of the things that they abused was care for one another. I think part of his lesson here is following and coming in line with the previous text that, that he's telling them, look, if you're a Christian and you partake in the Lord's table without loving your fellow church members, you, in a sense, when you dishonor the body of Christ, you dishonor Christ himself. Now, when I use the word body of Christ, we talk about believers. And so he knows there's great factions in this church, doesn't he? He knows that they have been separated, and some, some in classes, the rich and the poor, some in their giftedness. Well, I speak in tongues, I, I prophesy, I do all these things. And he's just trying to get them to love one another, chapter 13. And he's trying to show them if you dishonor one part of the body, you dishonor the whole. See, there's beauty and unity, and the table brings us together. Every time we remember this, it brings us together under the headship and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's such beauty there, isn't there? 
Now notice in verse 23, now Paul tells us he received the beauty and the formality of the Lord's table from the Lord himself. Isn't that interesting? He says, I received from the Lord. Prepositional phrase there, to position is something he has been given that I which all that that which I also deliver to you. Now, the Lord communicated with the Apostle Paul in many ways. Remember, we didn't have a complete manual there. The canon was not closed yet. It was still being written by Paul and other apostles here. So the Lord communicated in many ways, and he just communicated in conversation with him, right? We see maybe some aspects of that. Later, during visions, he received visions when the scriptures weren't complete to know what to do and where to go. We see him communicate to Paul through other agents like Ananias after he had been blinded on the road to Damascus. Ananias is inspired by the Lord. The Lord speaks to him and he speaks to Paul. We know that he spent three years in the desert, a real seminary type experience with the Lord where the Lord instructed him. And so he he does have direct revelation. There's time spent with the apostles. We know that he spent 15 days with Peter at one point. There's direct leading of the Spirit as he inspired letters as he wrote, just to name a few. Many believe Paul received this, what he's saying here is he received this from the other apostles. Well, that that might be true. It's possible that Matthew, there's some debate on the exact year that Matthew was written. It it could have been written uh, just before 1 Corinthians. Um, But the the other writings were not written yet. In fact, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 24 and 5 are almost mirrored to the book of Luke, which was not written yet. And so I tend to lean towards, this is direct revelation, that the Lord himself described his own table to the apostle Paul and how it was to be handled. Now, regardless of the way he received this revelation, we know it came from Jesus, right? The Bible says, I receive from the Lord. And we know that he has his hand on this, right? And it's the Lord it's, it, who has is, who is installed this worshipful practice. It's, it's he who is the one who personally directs the development of in the early church. It, it's him guiding the apostles as they started this. And look, as we saw last week, Jesus um, redirected the Passover meal to a new meal, didn't he? That's why we don't really celebrate the Passover under the new covenant. It's, it's good to look back at it. We can, see, we can see some biblical theology, how the Passover is all pointing towards Jesus Christ. But we celebrate the Lord's table now, don't we? That's, that's this redeeming factor of this, how God has made it even fuller. And so he completed the first to usher in the final new covenant. Don't but look at these two verbs, um, received and delivered. They're key words to the institution of the Lord's table. And it means they did not originate with Paul. He says, I receive them. They're they're given to me by Jesus, by the Lord. And then I do, as an obedient servant, sent one of God, I deliver them to you. Everything in those verbs tells us this is from the Lord. It's not from Paul. And so these words are divine. And listen, they must be honored, they must be kept, and they must be communicated properly. We've seen where that has not happened in the church. Somehow you're taking Jesus. Somehow this is a a further uh, impartation of grace to you in some way. There's been a 
uh, uh, almost, uh, could I dare I dare say, a sinful teaching of the table that robs God of his glory. And so this is divinely given. So we honor it and we keep it and we communicate it correctly. So Paul here expects those in the Corinth church that they would receive this sacred form of worship and pass it on to others which they weren't. Now, notice the phrase, this is fascinating, in the night in which he was betrayed. Look at it there. This tells us several things, doesn't it? I'll just mark three as I thought through this. First, it marks the familiarity with the suffering of Christ. Now, this is years later, right? Christ has died, buried, resurrected, and ascended on high, now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And still, when they think about the Lord's table, what comes to mind is the betrayal he went through. Suffering is a strong, very important aspect of the ministry of Jesus Christ in this world. In fact, it helps us suffer, doesn't it? Second, it's a reminder of the cost that the Lord paid. The Bible says he suffered alone. He was like a lamb led to a slaughter. He suffered alone. They strike the shepherd and, and the sheep scatter. He reminds them as they all the apostles leave at his arrest, Right? And then there's a man, right? A man named Judas who he had called and walked with him for those three years, watched him preach, saw all his miracles, saw his clear divine equality with the Father. And he abandons him, and not only abandons him, betrays him to the world. So there's a, there's a sense of cost here when you think about this in the night in which he was betrayed. Third, it reminds us of the intense, unwavering uh, obedience of our Lord. He, he just was not going to be stopped, was he? He knew the Father's plan. His goal was to fulfill that. Nothing would stop him. He was going towards that cross no matter what his friends did, no matter what the world did, no matter what the religious leaders did. He was unstoppable to the cross. Praise God. Praise God that he would do that. And while those, think about this, he's gathering in the upper room with his disciples. And while he's doing that, those who hate him were laying out their plans to arrest and murder him. The Lord is instituting one of the purest forms of worship with his disciples that would, bring, that would bring clarity to his death and burial and resurrection and even his return. And while he's doing that, they're planning how to kill him. And that's unwavering obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's why you trust him. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's unwavering. Notice also, Paul adds the name Jesus to the title of the Lord here. I think that's really cool. And I think what it does is it directs our attention to his earthly life. Jesus came in his incarnation, became fully man, right? We know he's fully God, right? That's, that's clear. If you know Jesus is God, then we really need to talk. There's no way he can pay for your sins if he's not God. There's no way he's, you know, calm seas and feeds people, you know, thousands and thousands of people and does all the things that healings does. He has to be God. But we got to remember, he is human. He has humbled himself. And he went under that for our salvation. And while he's doing that, he's betrayed. He's betrayed. Just that verb, betrayed, just real quickly. It's a 
It's an imperfect passive, and that, just, that simply just means that while he was dedicating to his disciples what he's going to do to secure their eternity and ours, there was a deed in progress going on. Hmm. That humbles me when I think about it. So Paul wants to keep this institution of the Lord's table in, in, in front of us, doesn't he? He wants this church, this wayward church to understand it. That in the context of the Passover meal, he's showing something that was even greater than that Passover meal. And this is what our friends that are caught up in, in maybe anything from Sabbatarianism to, to keeping the law in order to gain justification some way that way. It's such a reminder that the Passover meal is usurped by the Lord's table. This is what we remember Jesus through. We marvel that he has the power to bring whole nations out of Egypt, out of slavery. But that was all pointing towards to what he was going to do. Now, notice the text says, end of 23 to 24, he took the bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it. Well, the bread, that... That night that he broke that was a reminder of the Hebrews uh, and their exodus from Egypt, right? But now, I mean, we, we, we noted this last week, but it's so important to see this. Christ now makes it in such a way that it represents his body as the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Come, and this is his body. He is the bread of life. Pastor Jason read that verse. I am the bread of life. <laughs> he who takes me, who devours me is the idea will never hunger again. And you can see this is so much greater than just a nation coming out of slavery. As wonderful that was, this is even greater. And so this bread of life now, in life, is this bread of life is now in a physical body. Jesus is now here. His incarnation reminds us that, that he is who he said he is. He did all that he said he was going to do. He completed that. And this is the beauty of the bread when we Take it here in just a little bit. We're going to have a little wafer in our hand. It's going to remind us that Christ came in bodily form as the Messiah to represent us and die in our place. Oh, such beautiful truth, isn't it? Notice he gives thanks. Get our word Eucharist from this. Again, a term that can be misused, but simply it's Jesus Christ giving thanks not just for the meal, but think about this. He's giving thanks with full knowledge of what he's about ready to do. Man, I thought about that this week. I just meditated on a Lord who loved us and knew us from the foundations of the world. He's about ready to go under suffering that's, that is almost indescribable, not just in the physical aspect, but the spiritual uh, separation for his father, why he is judged as though he commits our sins. Just think about it. And in that moment, as he prepares, he gives thanks. That, that's beautiful, isn't it? Our salvation is anticipated in thanksgiving. Hmm. How gracious is our Lord. Notice he breaks the bread. It says he broke it and this simply just symbolizes the beginning of a meal. We talked about that last night, and, and, and we, we see that. He broke the bread. That symbolized something new was going to happen, the start of this. I think he's symbolizing this salvation that comes here. He's, but, but reality, when we think about this, he's symbolizing the beginning of a new covenant as he breaks this and gives this to him. He's ratifying this covenant through his body and his blood. 
some want to get into this breaking of the bread and applying it to the body of Christ, but we know the Bible says his body was not broken, was it? John chapter 19, verse 33, they broke the legs of the other thieves that are on the either side of Jesus, but coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 36, for this for these things came to pass to fulfill the scriptures, and now he quote Psalms 34, 20, not a bone of him shall be broken. So listen, when he breaks the bread, it's the start of something, right? That was how they did things in the ancient world. They broke the bread. It symboled that the Passover meal was going to start or a meal was going to start, even a fellowship meal. They broke it um, to launch things off. Here he's launching his new covenant with his coming death, burial, and resurrection. Then he says this, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, the morsel of bread which Jesus held in his hand does not become his physical body. This is so important. That bread remained bread. No matter how it's been twisted by religious organizations, that bread just was bread. It did not become Jesus. And we understand it's a clear symbol that, that stood for the reality of his coming bodily death. We have to get our minds around it. Well, we're going to have it here in a minute. You're going to have it in your hand. It's to remind you that Jesus left heaven, was, became incarnate, was placed in the womb of Mary... Came, came into this life like every other human, born of a woman, born under the law, born fully human so that he could represent us for eternity. What a beautiful thing. It is not given in some way that you gain Jesus through eating this. This would lessen his death. Maybe a good illustration is when the Spirit was symbolized like a dove that came upon the Lord Jesus Christ at his baptism. We, we don't believe that some dove came floating down and landed on the head of Jesus. It's figurative language, right? It's symbols. It teaches us the Spirit just came on him softly and beautifully, identifying him as the Messiah, the Son of God. And so this reminds us. And so here the night before his death... Jesus is speaking prophetically about his physical body. Take this bread. I'm speaking to you. This is what's going to happen. My body is going to be offered for you. And you need not add anything else to it. So Christ's body would be delivered for all who believe in his finished work. Now, this clear indication is that Jesus is saying, look, I'm about ready to die in your place. And and Paul says this so well in so many places. Romans 5, 8, we actually sang this today. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The bread was pointing to the love of God, wasn't it? And Jesus knows that, right? So the bread not only reminds us that Jesus Christ died bodily on the cross, but I want to throw one more thing in here. It reminds us that he, is a re he has and is to this day, has a resurrected, glorified body, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. See, it's there to remind us of those things. And in all of this, Paul says, look, do this in remembrance of me. Now he's quoting the Lord Jesus verbatimly. And this command, look, that comes from the lips of our Lord. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't do this because you're trying to gain me, because you're, you're trying to get rid of something. You're trying to deal with some guilt. You're trying to deal with something else. You're 
some selfish thing that creeps into this. Do this in remembrance of me. And look, it's, and that's why it's for saved people. If you're not saved, we would encourage you to let this go by because it's not for you. It's for those who put their faith in Christ alone. They, they are the ones who truly enjoy this. And look, our, our remembrance is sparked every time we faithfully, and listen to this, worshipfully take this. Our remembrance is, is, is spiked, isn't it? That's my Leah, Lord Jesus. That's my Jesus hanging on the cross for me. That's his blood who washed away my sins. It's personal, isn't it? And yet, there is a corporateness to it as well. Look at that. We, we come together, do this, all of us, do this to show the faithfulness of our Savior who brought us together. And in his faithfulness, he finished the work on the cross. And we are to partake of the Lord's table, not in disobedience, but in obedience as we remember him. As we go back and reaccount the beauty of the suffering of Christ in the midst of the darkness, that bright light, the light of the world, blazing the path to his Father through his finished work. Now, as you recall the reality and the significance of this event as we sit here and get ready to take this, you have to think Jesus wants us to remember the moment our life changed for eternity. And I think that's attached to the cross. Though Scott was saved in 1970, that salvation is directly attached to the finished cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when I think about my conversion, it races me back to the cross. It races me back to our our Lord and Savior who died for me, and that brings me great joy. It gives me endurance to run the race. It gives me strength to deal with sin. It it gives me strength to be involved with a corporate group of people called the church. All of that was designed for us. And so when we partake of the table, we enjoy worship of remembrance, the once and for all sacrifice, and it motivates us for life. Paul later writes in the the second letter to him, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ compels us. I love that word, drives us, um, controls us is the idea. Having concluded this, that one, Jesus, died for all, therefore all died. Now the all is all those who believe, right? We know this isn't universalism. And he died for all so that, now listen to this, this is, this is what communion needs to do for us, this table needs to do for us, so that we would live, we not, excuse me, so that we might not live any longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again for us. If we come away from this table and you're not encouraged to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, I either misled you or you heard it wrong. You hear that? This table, which reminds us of the death, burial, resurrection, and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in bodily form, is to motivate us to live for him. I hope that's what it does for you today. And that might mean repenting of sins, As we examine the fruitfulness of examination, that might be in this room. Even now, you might have to say, oh, God, I have not put you first. There's things in my life that are trying to crowd you out. That that still glorifies the Lord and makes you walk with him, doesn't it? Because you're dealing with sins, the very sins that put him on the cross. Now, look at verse 25 with me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I love the little phrase, in the same way. 
So it places uh, uh, equality on both elements, doesn't it? We, we don't have the blood more prominent than the body, right? You can't have one without the other. We need one who bodily represents us, both, uh, but also in his blood, the, could offer his blood as the final lamb. So we need both the body and the blood. They're equal. So in the same way, Paul says that. And all other lambs and all their blood, they just held off the wrath of God. This was the final one. And it's represented in his body and in his blood because through both he appeased the wrath of God for us forever, didn't he? Think about this. At the time of Christ's death and the application of that death to our salvation, for me, 1970, at the time of that moment, wrath turned to joy in God towards me. Isn't that amazing? The Lord of all, (laughs) the God of all, creator, sustainer of all things, his wrath on me because of my sin is now turned to joy to me because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And people take this table and abuse it. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have so much to love the Lord for. Symbolically, Christ brought his own blood into the most holy of holies right before his heavenly Father and offers it as the final sacrifice to all those who by faith would believe in Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews says that he appeared and he came uh, as, as a greater high priest and he entered a greater tabernacle, not, not one made with hands. And he came with, with not the blood of goats and calves and, and so forth, but he came with his own blood and he entered the holy place. And then it says this, having obtained an eternal redemption, that's ours. When you drink this cup here in a little bit, you are remembering that Christ gave you an eternal redemption. It never runs out. It never expires. For all of eternity, we will be the redeemed because of what Jesus did. And to think what Corinth was doing with this table, to think what Catholicism does with the table, Um, some of the forms of Lutheranism, some of the uh, Sabbatarian movement, some of those things, the mishandling of this table leads people astray. We have gone from wrath to joy. This is the only basis of our justification. The finished work of Jesus Christ is the only basis of your justification. Add to his finished work you are not justified. You are still guilty of your sin. And Paul reminds us of that. He says in that same passage, Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Oh, look what we've done. I've, 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 I've taken and consumed the body of Christ. And every time I do, I become more like him. Oh, that's heresy. <laughs> that tells you right there that, that the finished work of Christ was not enough. You had to add something to it. According to his mercy, Paul says. So listen, the table is not salvific, it's worship. Did you get that? This doesn't save you. This makes you a worshiper. This causes you to be in awe of our Lord. Look at verse 26. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, here Paul divinely adds to his own commentary here, and he's summing up the truth of the Lord's table. He uses a little, what I call a summarizing conjunction. He says, for, for as often. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this club, he's, he's summing this up in order that, to make sure the purpose of the table is clear. And he uses these, these terms again, the, the bread and, and the cup. And he repeats those phrase because Paul knows there's been abuse in the Corinth church. They've not handled the table right. They've not handled the fellowship meals right. He's driving home the point that the table is an act of worship, not centered around ritual and tradition. Or even selfishness. But notice he says, and he makes a bold statement here, doesn't he? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love this. Paul instructs all of those who eat this bread and drink this cup, including us. We proclaim Christ's death. And just minutes from here, after I wind up three real quick points, you're going to hold the bread and you're going to go, I'm a proclaimer. That Jesus died for me. That his death was enough for me. You're a proclaimer. And all those who partake of the table as a form of worship, they proclaim the death of Jesus. And they now have become partners in this new covenant, right? And God establishes us as his people, right? And this is a reminder of unity, right? We, we have unity in Christ. We have unity under the new covenant. We have uni unity as forgiven people. Doesn't that unite us together? You should see my view up here. It's a whole lot of forgiven people. It's gorgeous. And I didn't, I didn't secure your eternal life. The Lord did, and it's gorgeous to me. Imagine what it is to him. Isn't he beautiful? Look, as unity, unifying, we are proclaimers, we're evangelists, we're gospelized people. Peter says, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are you a proclaimer? Or do you hide this under some kind of bushel or under a bed where it cannot shine? We carry the greatest news in the world, brothers and sisters. And notice we do this until he comes. I love this little phrase. Every time the local church comes together and performs the Lord's table, we proclaim both Jesus' death and his return. Because he's not dead, right? And he's promised to come back. See, it causes the believer to look forward to things. I hope, listen, one of the reasons you know they're taking the table probably wrong is you're here and you're just going through all your problems and all the things you've messed up in life and you're just consumed with self and you never think about him and what he did and that he's coming back. I hope that changes today. Yes, there are things you and I need to deal with and sometimes we deal with it here. I hope you regularly deal with things that, uh, by yourself with the Lord, but sometimes you deal with them here. But the note, you know you took the table right is because you know you're now a proclaimer of his death and you can't wait to see him again because you're forgiven. It's the mark. In the early church, when they celebrated at the table, they finished with a prayer, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus, come. This table should push us to look for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Is this what the table does for you? 
Or are you trying to draw something out of the table that doesn't mean? You can't come to the table with penance. This isn't penance. In fact, penance is a lie from hell. People are always doing penance, right? Maybe I'll get God to like me if I do this or I suffer in some way or something and maybe, maybe he'll take away some of this. There's, there's no place for that in the Lord's table. It's certainly not part of salvation or in part, imparting grace in some way. You're not getting forgiveness of sins if you're a Christian. Your sins are already forgiven. It's a remembrance that he did those things. It is not some kind of ritual or tradition where you can just mindlessly do this. You're not going to get some special favor from God that yeah, you were here today and I got this. And That's not what it's about. It's a proclaiming of his death, burial, resurrection, his return, and this is a great truth. It's the gospel at the center of this, and our, de- our eternal destiny has been changed. And here at Riverbend, that's why we celebrate this table. Celebrate it because of that. Three more thoughts real quickly. Number two. The distortion of the man-centered communion. Look at verse 27 with me. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let's be clear here. On our own, we are, there's none of us worthy, are we? Anybody think they're worthy on your own without the finished work of Jesus Christ to step into the presence of the Father? Oh, you'll step into his presence as he condemns you to eternal hell if you come on your own worthiness. That's very clear in the scriptures. But I don't think that's the meaning here of unworthy manner here that the Apostle Paul is talking about. A person that a person can come to the table in many unworthy ways that we just mentioned, penance and trying to impart grace or traditions and selfishness and all those things. But going through the motions does not mean that your mind and your heart are engaged in worship. Hmm. Did I just step on anybody's toes? Because it stepped on mine. I've been taking communion for 50 years. Have every one of those communions, my heart and mind, been engaged in it? I think when we don't engage with the Lord Jesus Christ and give him honor and glory for what he has done and found great joy in this, it's an unworthy manner. When we come with just a half-heartedness or trying to gain something else from this, it is unworthy. And I think too often believers can come to the table with bitterness and even a hatred towards other people. Or they come with a hard heart of unrepentant sin. And I think what Paul is doing is he's establishing that if someone comes to the table with any other goals or motivations other than a heart of thanksgiving for the finished work of the triune God, he or she comes in an unworthy manner. In this unworthy manner, Paul states that they will be guilty of the blood and the body of the Lord. Remember, if we come in an unworthy way, I don't think we're disgracing the ceremony of the Lord's table per se or as much as we are disgracing the Lord himself. When you come and you think you're going to get saved through this or, you're, or you just take it not seriously or whatever. In, a, in essence, you're saying, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross. I heard it. Not the big a deal. See, I think that's unworthy. And I think here this word guilty refers 
to the guilt of disgracing, abusing, neglecting, rejecting, dismissing the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is his body and blood that represents his completed and perfect, gracious life in his finished work on our behalf. And when you take that, um, when you take that half-heartedly, or you try to add to what he's done, you disgrace him. And you're guilty of his death. That means, you, the thing about this, his death either saves you eternally or damns you eternally. One of the two. One of the two. And so we must take this serious. His suffering and his death were caused by our guilt, right? Caused by our sins. And so in a very real sense, the abuse of the table in any way causes the guilt of mocking and treating the person of Jesus Christ with meaningless meaningless importance, right? And that's what was happening in Corinth. They're having a fellowship meal and everybody's eating their food before before somebody else comes and there's no concern with others and then they rush through the Lord's table and don't think about the significance of it and they're drunk and they're they're hungry and there's all kinds of problems going on and then they have some oratorical guy come in and give some speech. Everything that God had given to the church was being abused and Paul's had it with it. The writer of Hebrews talks about this kind of behavior. He says in chapter 10, verse 26, how much severe punishment do you think will be deserved who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? And that's what happens when we don't handle the table right. And that's why we take a moment here to examine our own hearts and minds, right? Look at verse 28. But a man, a person here who believes they're a believer, a man or woman, young person, must examine himself, verse 28. And in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. See, this is exactly what the Corinth church wasn't doing. (laughs) Their gluttonous, their drunks, their, their selfish behavior that's described in verses 17 through 22. We preached that last week. Is, is evident. But the redeemed, what they do is they honestly exi- desire to examine themselves, see if their hearts and their minds are engaged with the gospel. Are you engaged with the gospel, brother and sister? Does it impact you daily? When we come together, do you realize the presence of all these believers here, here are all under the finished work of Jesus Christ. If, we're, if we claim Christ, it's, it's a powerful thing. It's changed us from death to life, from lost to found, to blind to seeing. And we remember this in the Lord's table. Look, the examination, this fruitful examination here, helps the church be purified. This is what keeps us from church discipline. This is what keeps our marriages um, and examples, right? Because, because when we come together, we examine ourselves. We don't examine that guy or that gal. We examine ourselves. Lord, I haven't put you first today. I've been struggling with self or whatever it is. And you, you examine that. And you say, oh, Lord, I know you died for me. I'm so grateful you did that. Let the gospel motivate me to change and to follow you. I think the key here there is there, there must be a balance between celebration and examination, right? I love to celebrate the table. There's, it is such a pure form of worship. I enjoy it so much. I love ministering it to you, to myself, to my family, to enjoy this. But at the same time, there's this beautiful balance of going, hey, Scott, are you right with the Lord? Are you walking with him as you celebrate his goodness? Isn't that beautiful? 
Isn't that good for us? Isn't that a purifying work for this church? If you, if you take care of your relationship with the Lord and I take care of my relationship with the Lord, wouldn't that be a beautiful place to be involved in? See, that's, that's the idea here. It's fruitful. But celebration without examination brings a discipline of the Lord. Look at verses 29 and 30. For he who eats and drinks and eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. When a believer abuses the Lord's table in some way, they draw the discipline of God upon themselves, right? It's interesting, the word judgment is used both in a noun form and a verb form in these verses here. And the word judgment, the noun form, one carries the idea of discipline because the saved won't go under condemnation, right? Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, right? But we do undergo discipline. And if the Christian attempts to use this table in a self-centered way, they fall under the loving hand, the loving disciplining hand of God because they didn't judge what Christ did rightly. They misused it, and he disciplines us. And that's what he's saying in verse 30. There's some weak and some are sick and some even sleep. The, the, the second verb there, not the, not the noun, but the verb judge, carries the idea of discerning. There's a distinction made here. There's a correct judgment of something is the idea of the word here. And it, and it, in, in other words, don't miss how God intends us to remember his son's work. At the table, if you're a believer, he will lovingly discipline you if you misjudge this table and you don't handle it correctly. It's a good reminder. One last quick word on this, the word body there. Um, there's many who believe it's a term referring to the church. Uh, I, I, I personally don't see that or agree with that interpretation, but I think there's great application there. I think what happens is they take application and, and make it. I think this is pointing towards the body of Christ, his finished work is what that term body means. But think about this. The Lord's table is not just any meal, though. It's a meal that we partake of one loaf, one cup, in order to proclaim individually, but corporately, the death, burial, and resurrection, the return of Jesus. And so we do this as the body of Christ, not just some socially diverse group of people doing this. We are the body of Christ. We're the blood blot believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his family, right? We're the bride of Christ. We're God's children. So we handle this in a way, and when we handle it correctly, it affects all of us, doesn't it? I don't know how many times I've had, since I've been here the last seven years or so, um, people come up and say, I have enjoyed communion so greatly. And I appreciate that because that affects me. And I see it in you. I, 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 when the table is set and you come in, I don't see a bunch of people go, oh, Lord's table, and they leave. Now, that may happen. I don't see everything that happens. But I think this church enjoys it, right? Because it, it influences us, right? To love Christ and to love one another. And I think the church in Corinth failed at this area in their mistreatment of the fellowship meal, their distortion of the table, in the truth of the body and blood of Christ, that was a distortion of the worship service. And Paul's after him and he says, look, because of this, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and a number of you sleep, you're dead. They died. Lord is jealous about his worship. Third, the fruit of Christ-centered examination. Look at verse 31 with me real quick. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Right judgment first starts with humility. 
So as we come to the table here in just a moment, are you humbled? I, I hope this message has said, oh, my God is so good. I don't deserve what he did for me. But I'm so thankful. So, so I think that's where that right examination starts, that right judgment. It starts with a humility, doesn't it? And that humility leads to celebration. So when you go, I don't deserve this, a smile comes on your face, doesn't it, afterwards? Because even though you didn't deserve it, but he did it for you. He saved you. And so examination leads to celebration because of our great grace that God has given to us. Those who were justified by faith, Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 says we're not under condemnation, but there's humility there. Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, I was formerly a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy, he says. And the grace of our Lord was abundant to me with faith and love. That's what he gave him which was found in Christ Jesus is a trustworthy statement. Listen, it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners in whom I am the chief. Come to the table that way. Oh, that, that'll turn examination into joy. Lord, chief of sinners is back. But thank you for making me a trophy of your grace. I couldn't take this cup. I couldn't eat this bread if you didn't make me your child. And I take this bread as I examine my life to honor you, to exalt you, to give you praise for everything. Look at verse 32 quickly. But when we judge ourselves, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. As believers, if we don't come to the table right, or we come in an unworthy manner, we can expect the loving arm, the disciplining arm of God upon us to draw us back into right fellowship. But look, look at he's doing in verse 32. He's making a great distinction between those who are disciplined and those who are condemned. Let me say this. A woman walked in my office one time. She said, my son claims to be a believer, but he has no evidence in his life. I think he's saved. And I said, I... I don't know. <laughs> I can't look into your son's heart. I don't know. But here's what I'll tell you. If he's a believer and he's living in disobedience, the Lord will discipline him because he disciplines the ones he loves. If he never sees the disciplined hand of God, pray for his salvation. That's what we do. Because he disciplines the one he loves. He condemns the ones that are not his. Last thought real quickly for the blessing of unity versus the fear of judgment. Verse 33 so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. <laughs> I love this little encouragement. It's clear in this verse that Paul supports the fellowship meal, right? When you come together, wait for one another. His admonishment was for them to repent here. You can see this of their gluttonous, their drunkenness, their disunifying, factious behavior, their self-righteousness, and their blatant selflessness is what he's after in these little short words, right? And when you start with this, look at this. Just think about this. Wait for one another. Wait for one another. You know, that's the fruit of the Spirit. I wrote in my notes the fruit of the Spirit. And I just wrote them out. Waiting for one another shows the love of God, doesn't it? You put other people before you. You think more highly of them. You deal with people unconditionally. That's the way we're supposed to love our husbands and wives, right? Love unconditionally. You wait for them. 
Maybe you have to wait for them to grow. Maybe you have to wait for them to come to Christ. Maybe you have to wait in many ways, but it reflects the love of God. There's joy in waiting, isn't there? There's joy in waiting because joy tells me my God's in control. He's faithful. Brian Giaquinto said this about giving today. There's a, there's a joy in his faithfulness as you wait on him. You go, man, Scott, I want to tithe. I want to give to the Lord, but, I, but I'm broke. Or I don't know what's going to happen with this economy. You give to him because you find joy in knowing and waiting on him that he's going to meet your needs. You find joy and pleasure in waiting on the Lord because he gives you peace. Peace helps you wait, doesn't it? Peace as things are going to work out. You have patience. I think it goes right with that waiting. The Lord has given you now patience to wait on his fulfilled will. You do it with kindness and goodness. And you see the faithfulness of God and you become faithful. You're gentle with one another and you have self-control. And just think that. I think that's what Paul's telling. Think about that. He's telling them that to live out the fruit of the Spirit with one another in their fellowship meal and everything else. Finally, verse 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will, will arrange when I come. Well, I think this last phrase um, here just points to this. Paul says, look, when you come together as a church, this is not some ordinary event. This is not just a meal at home where we sit around and quick prayer, oh, Lord, thanks for the food. We shouldn't do that either. This is special. Don't make it ordinary. I think that's what he's saying. If you're hungry, don't treat the house of God, don't treat his table like you'd treat your own house. (laughs) This is unique. And so he tells us to be careful of those things. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. Most likely these are other aspects of worship that he didn't get to divinely. But Paul saw the table as priority and he wanted to take care of this. So Riverbend Church, let me close with this and move to the table. How Riverbend handles the Lord's table is a reflection of who we are. I really think it is. The way we preach about it, teach it, how we minister with the truth and the doctrine that we hold to the table is really who we are. We're a church that will examine each other, but worship and celebration of a God who did it all through Jesus Christ. We'll examine ourselves, won't we? We'll examine to make sure we're right with God. So let's do this well for the glory of God. May we have joy in obeying Him. Father in heaven, we thank You for the table. We thank You for this instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. Lord, this is so important for us. There's many people in this room here, some in overflow, There's people watching at home. And Lord, doubtlessly, there could be those who may take the table in an unworthy way, Lord. Lord, we don't want to do that. We want to take it in a way that honors and glorifies you to the most degree. We don't want to add to anything you have done, Lord. We want to hold that cup and that bread in our hands and reflect that Jesus came bodily in the incarnation to represent us, to die on that cross, to take our sins, take the penalty, shed his blood to justify us for eternity, Lord. We want only to reflect and remember that great truth, Lord, and never add to it. And so, Lord, we, may we let traditions and rituals go. May we engage with the table today in our deep reflection 
of our great and glorious King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. May you be honored by how we handled this. May the saints be encouraged. And may you unite Riverbend Church as one body. In Jesus' name, amen.